Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 30th, 2017. On this week's show, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer will join me to discuss the Astros' 13-12 win over the Dodgers in one of the craziest World Series games of all time, as well as Astros first baseman Yuli Gurriel's racist gesture during Game 3 and Major League Baseball's decision not to suspend him until next year. My colleague Jeremy Stahl and Don Van Natta Jr. of ESPN will also be here to talk about the -the behind-the-scenes machinations in the NFL where the players and owners are fighting over who gets to protest and where and when and how. And Colin Kaepernick, it seems, has been frozen out of those conversations. Finally, Alexandra Starr will join me as well as Slate's Christina Cotarucci to talk about her article in Harper's about sexual abuse in gymnastics, swimming, volleyball, and other sports, and what can be done about it. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, and joining me for this whole show is absolutely no one. That makes two weeks in a row without any top-of-the-show banter. Isn't that right, Josh? That's right, Josh. All work and no banter make Josh a dull Josh, and so forth, etc. repartee. Let's just start the show, shall we? On Sunday night in Houston, Texas, and also on Monday morning in Houston, Texas, the Astros beat the Dodgers in a game where five different Houston players hit home runs, That is a World Series record. The Dodgers also lost the game after taking a 4-0 lead with Clayton Kershaw on the mound. That was the first time all year they'd blown any four-run lead. A bunch of other stuff happened too, and we'll probably get to about a tenth of it. But the upshot is that the Astros won 13-12 in 10 innings and 5 hours and 17 minutes. Houston is up 3-2 in the World Series as it goes back to Los Angeles for Game 6. Both teams' bullpens are at this point broken assemblages of mismatched limbs. And Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa and George Springer 
and Alex Bregman are extremely fun. Yasiel Puig and Cody Bellinger and other Dodgers, they're fun too. Lots of fun to go around when you're scoring 25 runs in one dang baseball game. Joining me now is Ben Lindbergh, who writes about baseball for The Ringer and is the co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast, among other podcasts. Hello, Ben. Hello, Josh. Baseball is good. Sixth most exciting World Series game (laughs) of all time, according to something. Explain to me why and how it's the sixth most exciting World Series game of all time. Yeah, we don't necessarily need a a wonky stat maybe to quantify excitement, but it's baseball. So to be honest, we we always need a stat, right? We I think we all felt this at the time, but there is a a stat. I felt it was like the seventh, uh, maybe maybe the sixth. Yeah, you could quibble, right? Maybe maybe you could quibble with this, but I think you know by this same metric, game two was sixteenth all time in the World Series. This one was sixth, though we actually topped game two. So this metric basically it just takes all the win probability changes in a game and adds them all up. So if one team does something good, their odds of winning the game go up. The other team does something good, their odds of winning the game go up. You add up all of those changes and you add up, you end up with one number. And of course, these games have been long. They've gone to extra innings and we've just seen an extraordinary number of reversals and comebacks. And so with, as you would expect, we've seen a lot of changes in each team's win expectancy. So you add it all up and this is a classic World Series and two classic games. And I think the stats definitely match the eye test in this case. So if you've been following baseball for uh, a while, I think the game that came to mind first would be that 15 to 14 Phillies Jays game in the 1993 World Series, just because the score was very similar. But, you know, you can't obviously draw a conclusion just based on these two data points. But it is really striking to me, Ben, if you look back at that 15 to 14 game, there were only three home runs. Mm -hmm. And there are obviously seven home runs in this game. There have been 22 in this World Series, which is the most ever for a World Series. And it's only been five games so far. Um, Do you think it's fair to say um, that, you know, 15-14 game with three home runs compared to to 13-12 game with seven home runs is really indicative of how baseball has changed and what it's like in 2017? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, this series has been very reflective of how the sport is played now. We've seen a ton of home runs, a ton of strikeouts, a ton of pitching changes for better or for worse. And I think fortunately for baseball, it's mostly been for the better in this series so far. And of course, the baseball has been a storyline in baseball all season long. And you might be inclined to say that the baseball, the sport, and baseball, the piece of sporting equipment, has a PR problem at this point because, I mean, a lot of the discussion before Game 5 was about these reports from players that the ball seems slicker now. So not only is it bouncier or have having lower seams, which we've already discussed on this show, but now it's slicker and pitchers can't get a grip and they can't throw sliders. And who knows, that's a little harder to statistically determine, especially over the course of one series when people are saying it's the World Series baseball specifically that are different. But you would say this is a bad thing, right? Because you're always wondering, like if Clayton Kershaw gives up a home run yesterday, yesterday on a flat slider, you're wondering, well, was that Clayton Kershaw throwing a flat slider or was it the baseball being slick? And we don't know now. And you have to wonder about that. And on the one hand, it's probably not great for players to be dissing the baseball, basically. On the other hand, this was a ton of fun. And I don't know that anyone now is looking at this game and saying, yeah, some of those home runs may have been because of the juiced baseball or the slick baseball. I think we're all saying that was wild and crazy and amazing. 
Well, first of all, do you believe that the baseball is slicker just based on the testimony from uh, pitchers and, you know, Tom Verducci's reporting about the appearance of the baseball? Do you buy it? It's hard to know. I mean, when we determined that the ball seems to be juiced, that it seems to be bouncier and the seam seems to be lower, that was based on years of data and actual physical testing of the baseball. So I think we we all kind of leaped to that conclusion, but then we confirmed that conclusion with actual data and large samples and physical testing. And we don't have that here. We just have some players who mostly have been bad (laughs) saying that the baseball is bad. And on the one hand, it's compelling because these are (laughs) players who should know if the baseball feels different. And we're getting it from both teams here. On the other hand, these are the people you would expect to say, oh, it's the ball, or even just to convince themselves that it's the ball if they believe it. And over the course of five games or so, it's tough to look at the numbers and, you know, you can compare the spin rate and the speed and that sort of thing. And it doesn't seem glaring that there's a difference or the movement changes, but it's hard to tell because this will fluctuate from game to game and ballpark to ballpark anyway. So I believe that there's something going on here, I think. And Again, it comes back to the debate we've been having all season. Is this bad for baseball or is it good? And I think just based on pure excitement, it's not bad. I don't think anyone's walking away from the sport because of how this series has been played and all the home runs that have been hit. I think one thing that we can say with confidence is that when there are a lot of home runs, when there's a lot of offense, it's really good as far as promoting um, these star players that we've gotten to see these guys both perform great feats on the field, but also, and I think maybe more importantly, show their personalities. I mean, the clip of Correa jumping out of the dugout, leaping over the barrier, um, kind of coaching his teammate and to score the winning run in the 10th last night. Like, if you didn't know Carlos Correa before this series, you know him now, and you know all of these guys. You know Jose Altuve, you know George Springer, you know what they look like when they're um, just having the time of their lives. And this would, I mean, I don't want to get too back into the conspiracy theory here, but um, it is good for baseball when players are excited and teams are scoring lots of runs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe Yankees-Dodgers would have been the perfect matchup for MLB, financially speaking, ratings-wise, but they really couldn't have asked for a better matchup than these two teams to showcase the sport. Not only are they two of the best teams in the sport, but they also have several of the most compelling players. And we've seen this youth movement in the league over the last few years, and some of the leading lights of that movement are in the series, just as they were last year, by the way, with the Indians and Cubs and Francisco Lindor and Chris Bryant and on and on. And yeah, this has been the most gifable series we've seen in some time. <laughs> I think just it, it feels like this is a series when the nail has finally been driven into the coffin of the idea that you're supposed to always maintain your composure and baseball is supposed to be somber and serious. And yeah. we have a lot of players in the series from Puig to Correa to Altuve and on and on who are showing their emotions and just the reaction faces in the series have been the best with the exception of Yuli Gurriel's reaction face, which was the worst. Maybe we'll talk about that too. Fortunately, that did not turn out to be the story of game five. But I think we've really been lucky here because you have these two matchups between 
great teams and great young players who are going to be the quote unquote faces of baseball for a decade or more and could have been a lousy series. No one would have been surprised if someone had swept and someone had just rolled right over the other. Instead, we have two classic games and a lot of close games and what is shaping up to be just one of the most memorable series of all time. When you mentioned players being exuberant and that can, you know, be manifested in terms of like bat flips and mm-hmm. and lots of the, other different right. ways. But the opposite in Puig's case, right? He laid the bat down <laughs> gently and caressed it and licked it. Very sensual. <laughs> the thing that's been really awesome though is that a lot of these guys, um, you know, you just said Puig, we've also mentioned Altuve and Correa, that these are the best uh, Latin players mm-hmm. in the game and that they're becoming more of household names and that they're bringing um, a lot of, you know, the spirit of of what Latin players have done in the game for the last, you know, many decades in terms of making it, I think, less stuffy. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other funny thing that I think hasn't been mentioned is that Brian McCann, the Astros catcher, <laughs> was right. one of the guys who's most prominent in saying that these guys need to learn how to play the game the right way. And now his teammates are, um, you know, showing us that this traditional idea of how you have to like look somber on the field is just like not the way it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, that cultural divide has sometimes been expressed explicitly by players. The idea that you can play baseball that way in those countries, but when you come to our country, you need to play it this way. And we just haven't really seen much of that sentiment in this series, fortunately, because there are so many Latin players and international players, and they're the stars of the series. And it's on both teams, too. So it's not as if one team can really take offense because they're both doing it. And we've had a lot of comments to that effect. Yasiel Puig, I believe after game two, Carlos Correa had a notable bat foot in that game and that's the kind of thing where the other team's players traditionally will take offense and maybe there will be retaliation and Puig said no you know this is how he's entitled to play he should celebrate and Kenley Jansen gave up a home run and he said hey if you get me you should be proud of yourself. You should celebrate. You should so sh- show some emotion. So we haven't seen any of that backlash that we historically have. And I, I'm hoping that this reflects a, a turning point. So one of the stars of this series has been Yuli Gurriel, um, first baseman for the Astros. He defected from Cuba in 2016. But before that, he had actually played in Japan. The Cuban mm-hmm. government had allowed him to play there in 2000. And 14. So um, fast forward to the World Series. Gurriel hits a home run off of the Dodgers' Yu Darvish, who is of Japanese and Iranian descent. And in the dugout, he makes a gesture where he touches his fingers to his eyes, making a like slant eye gesture, mm-hmm. um, for lack of a better term. And he could also be seen mouthing uh, the word chinito, which is um, a slur. I mean, it's complicated. Um, There are people who have written, Dylan Hernandez of um, the LA Times has written about, um, you know, some of the cultural issues here about how, um, you know, these remarks are seen in Latin countries. But basically, it was a racist gesture and a racist remark. It was caught on camera and... Gurriel um, said, acknowledged after the game that he had done it. He did the classic, I'm sorry if you were offended. Mm -hmm. And this led to about 18 hours 
of Major League Baseball being put in the position of trying to figure out what to do with the guy who made this really profoundly racist gesture during the middle of the uh, you know sports showcase event. So Ben, why don't you set, tell us what baseball decided to do and how you felt about how it was handled? Yeah, so there was no great outcome to this, I think, even just aside from the tastelessness and offense of the initial gesture and any hurt that may have caused, I think this was always going to hang over the series in some respect because there was the option of trying to suspend him immediately, in which case he might have been able to appeal or defer the suspension until next season anyway. Ultimately, that's what Rob Manfred decided to do. He sort of split the baby here and he said, okay, we won't suspend you right now, but we will suspend Guriel for five games in the 2018 regular season. So he will play for the rest of the series. And he based that, I think, on the fact that, you know, there's a more of a punitive element to it, just financially speaking, in that Guriel will lose salary during those regular season games. And Darvish, I think, took the high road and turned the other cheek and said more or less that it was okay with him if if that was what happened. I don't know if that's how you should decide what to do here, but that's a factor that he took into account. And of course, there's the specter of the Players Association and how they're going to react to it. And this deal was sort of worked out in concert with them. It's It's hard, I think, because Obviously, if he had been suspended and missed games during this series, that's a significant blow. Guriel has been one of the best hitters this postseason. He was an above-average hitter throughout the regular season. And, of course, you don't want to penalize a team at the moment when the games matter the most and a fan base that suffered through 50 and 60 win seasons to suddenly lose some shot at winning because of one idiotic action by one of their players. On the other hand, we've seen that many times throughout baseball history. A player does something stupid and he's suspended and that's that. And I think just the message it would have sent to suspend him immediately. We've seen some precedent for this. There have been homophobic and racist slurs by various players over the past couple of years, and MLB generally has suspended them or their team has. And often it's just been for two games or so. So in that sense, this is a stiffer penalty, which I think reflects the timing of it, as well as the public nature of it, the fact that it was caught on camera. But just, I think, the signal that it would have sent to say, this is unacceptable, and it's unacceptable whether it happens in the World Series or the regular season, and ultimately our conception of what sort of league we want to be takes precedence over affecting the game on the field. So, you know, I think people would have been upset with that, and some people are upset with the way this was resolved. Once he committed that action, I think it, there was always going to be some, you know, after effects some blowback from this, and, and that's unfortunate. So Rob Manfred, the commissioner, said a couple different things that I um, wanted to respond to. The first is that Manfred, as you said, Ben, he said very explicitly, World Series games are different than regular season games. That's a direct right. quote. He also said, I felt it was unfair to punish the other 24 players on the Astros roster. I wanted the burden of this discipline to fall primarily on the wrongdoer. So here are my thoughts on on those two things. First... I think you had it exactly right that the message that he is sending here, the commissioner, is that we care about racism and homophobia in our game, except if it happens in the World Series. And then in that case, the World Series takes precedent. Right. And I think that um, it would have sent a really powerful message to say, you know what, if you don't want to get suspended and you don't 
want to punish the other players on that on the roster don't do incredibly <laughs> racist things. Yes. Like it's pretty it's pretty easy. Like um the burden here and the punishment should fall on the player, but the player plays for a team and there's no way to really separate those two things nor do mm-hmm. I think there should be. And the message that this sends I I think is also one that you know, racism against Asian players is in a separate category. Like, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to deal with hypotheticals and perhaps unfair. But I do feel like if a slur had been made against a different group, then the outcome would have been different. And the position that Darvish was put in, Ben, was a horrible one. That basically he was, the fact that he was so gracious in his response I think what else is the guy supposed to do and supposed to say? Like he he did say immediately afterwards that it was a racist gesture and that he was upset by it. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that he believed everything he said. But he's basically being put in the position of like sanctifying baseball's choice here. And I right. don't actually think – I think if he was suspended for one game in the World Series, I really don't think that would have tilted – the competitive balance to mm-hmm. such a degree that it would have been just like untenable. Like, how could you possibly do this? Like the NBA suspended Draymond Green during the finals. And that really did tilt that series. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously had the advantage there of it being just like kind of a programmed algorithmic decision where, you know, once you decide that he kicked LeBron James in the groin, then he already had so many flagrant foul points and you have to suspend him. There wasn't really subjectivity there. But I just really think that by suspending him for one game, it wouldn't have tilted the competitive balance. You would have signaled that um, no game is, you know, above just acting like a human being. And it would have, you know, wouldn't have carried into next season. I think that that would have satisfied everything that they claim to to want to stand for. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And and Manfred, one of his other justifications was essentially, let's just put this behind us if we agree that he'll be suspended. You didn't do next that, season. bro. <laughs> no, not at all. That is the opposite of what happened here. For one thing, it's carrying over into 2018 now, right? So the suspension hasn't actually happened. The story is not over. And you also run the risk of Guriel playing a pivotal role in this series after going unpunished for now. And that's something that happened in game five. Now, it was several home runs and comebacks ago, so maybe it's not quite as pivotal as it appeared to be in that moment. But with one swing, Guriel hit a big home run off Clayton Kershaw, and that was just a, a confluence of stories that I think none of us really want the World Series to be about, which is Clayton Kershaw struggling, the old can't pitch in the postseason story, Guriel succeeding and having a big hit after not being suspended. And of course, it was on a slider. So slick balls, you get that in there too. So that was uh, a painful swing, I think, for a lot of reasons other than for Astros fans who were happy to have the game tied up. But yeah, it never leaves a great taste in your mouth when you see something like this and then you see the home crowd giving the guy a standing ovation, which, okay, it's one thing if he hits a game-tying home run in the World Series. I think we can only expect so much of fans and the partisan affiliations that they have there. But every now and then you you see this sort of thing, and it, it really just isn't what you, what you want the World Series to be about. Damn right. Um, game six is on Tuesday in Los Angeles. 
I will not go through even the perfunctory, what do you think is going to happen? Because <laughs> we don't know. And we we don't know in baseball. We don't know in the playoffs. And we especially don't know in this series. But we will be watching. Uh, ben Lindberg writes about baseball for The Ringer. He hosts all the podcasts. One of them that I particularly enjoy is called Effectively Wild. Thank you so much as always, Ben. Thank you, Josh. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the NFL, heads up that in the Hang Up and Listen bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, I will talk to Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer about our favorite baseball video games. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag and you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every single week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. In the run-up to Sunday afternoon's game between the Houston Texans and the Seattle Seahawks, reports emerged that Texans players were pondering peeling the decals off their helmets to protest owner Bob McNair's comment said to his fellow owners in a private meeting two weeks ago that we can't have the inmates running the prison. When the anthem began to play in Seattle, though, the majority of the Texans players protested in a manner that's become familiar over the last two NFL seasons, taking a knee, just like Colin Kaepernick had done in 2016 as a statement on racial justice and inequality. The conversation that Kaepernick started remains ongoing, although as my colleague Jeremy Stahl reported over the weekend, it seems like that conversation no longer involves Colin Kaepernick. Emails between Kaepernick's lawyers, the NFL Players Association, and Malcolm Jenkins, who heads up a new group called the NFL Players Coalition, indicate that the former 49ers quarterback has been on the outside looking in as the commissioner's office and owners and a select group of players have been engaged in conversations behind the scenes about the protest movement and whether it's possible to forge a compromise that will make every NFL stakeholder happy and get Donald Trump to stop calling players sons of bitches. Joining me now is Don Van Natta Jr., who's reported on those behind-the-scenes meetings with his colleague Seth Wickersham in two fantastic and very well-sourced pieces for ESPN. He's also writing a book with Wickersham with the working title Powerball. It's about Roger Goodell and the NFL. Hey, Don. Hey, Josh. How are you? I'm great. Um, also happy to be joined by Jeremy Stahl, who got a hold of those Kaepernick emails and who wrote about them on Slate over the weekend. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, guys. So, Don, let me start with you. Um, I mentioned those pieces that you've been working on with Seth Wickersham, where you got inside information about what's been going on in these behind-the-scenes meetings, and you were the one to report that inmates running the prison uh, comment. Before we get to the bigger picture here, uh, I wanted to ask you about that and if you knew that it would cause such a stir when you guys published it. We had a sense that it was going to cause a stir. Yeah, we were we we heard about it pretty late in the reporting. Uh, our piece was published Friday morning on ESPN.com, and it'll be in uh, the new ESPN the magazine. And uh, Seth initially heard about it early 
last week, uh, and uh, we were able to confirm it and had a sense that it was such a volatile statement, and it uh, very likely would cause quite a few waves. Jeremy, it seemed like, um, based on your reporting, that um, the McNair comment sort of changed things behind the scenes and affected what players were thinking, affected possible future meetings between owners and and players and this Malcolm Jenkins NFL Players Coalition. Yeah, that's based on these emails and based on what uh, multiple sources have told me that that's pretty much right. Um, you know, the buildup to this, it, it, it's important to see how the precise timeline of whether or not there was ever going to be a meeting this week, a second meeting between players and owners um, this week, how that went down on Wednesday, Joe Lockhart, uh, the uh, communications director for the NFL, said that uh, there was going to be a meeting this week on Tuesday and that it was up to the players whether or not to invite Colin Kaepernick. But they anticipated he would attend. This resulted in uh, Kaepernick's lawyers sending these emails first to the NFL, then to the NFLPA, seeking details of this meeting because they had not been formally invited to attend, according to these emails. So on Thursday, the NFLPA responds to Kaepernick's lawyers and says, we are unaware of this meeting that the NFL has reported is scheduled for this week, right? And on Friday morning, um, this news breaks uh, that Don and Seth report of the McNair comments. And a source familiar with the, uh, the situation at the NFLPA told me that as of Friday morning, they had still not been invited to any meeting and were not aware of any meeting to occur this week. On Saturday, uh, this Players Coalition, led by Jenkins, releases a letter that is reported by ESPN that states that they were proposing a meeting that would include McNair, Kaepernick, and Roger Goodell. This would be for today, uh, Monday, and by Sunday, the meeting had uh, pretty much dissolved and the proposal was done. They, they acknowledged that the meeting was not going to take place. And you can see based, based on the behind-the-scenes chaos uh, surrounding this meeting that there really was nothing planned, it looks like, and certainly Colin Kaepernick was not ever really invited as... Uh, the NFL suggested in this press call last week. So, Don, like looking at this from the outside, it does seem like total chaos um, based on what you know about the meetings that have taken place. How organized are they? Who are the key players here? Um, and, you know, what can we expect going forward? Yeah, as Jeremy laid out, it, it is chaos. It is a bit of a mess. Uh, they're making it up as they go along. Uh, you have a situation where there's a players coalition that is actually separate from the union. And, um, you know, we saw a few weeks back at the committee meetings, there was all sorts of dissension between Demora Smith, who is the executive director of the National Football League Players Association, and the league because Demora Smith was not invited to that initial meeting that Roger Goodell had at the committee meetings in New York a few weeks back. And some players uh, wanted to walk out because of that. 
Right. There are, right. So there's been conversations that Roger Goodell and Troy Vincent at the league have been having separate from the union with a certain number of players. The, the name now is the Players Coalition. Malcolm Jenkins is, is probably the leader of that group. And they want to talk independent of the union because as, as they see these issues that are so important to them, these social justice issues, the criminal justice reform issues, they're completely separate from collective bargaining in their view. And so they're doing this independent of the union. Now, the union, of course, is not thrilled about that. And you see the same thing in the prism of the Kaepernick situation. Kaepernick has hired Mark Garagos, an outside lawyer. He's not going through the NFLPA. And I think a little bit of what Jeremy was describing is this same rift that is going on between certain players, the Jenkins group, as I mentioned, and also Kaepernick, who are sort of, you know, running parallel to the union. And the union, of course, you know, wants to have some degree of control here. Jeremy, I mean, the thing that's fascinating to me is that, you know, based on Don's reporting and reporting elsewhere, we knew about rifts between ownership and different owners, whether it's Jerry Jones or Bob McNair or Stephen Ross or any anyone else, you know, different opinions about Goodell's performance, different opinions about what should be done about players who protest during the anthem. But the thing that came out of your reporting and, and also Don's most recent story is rifts between players. Um, and that, to me, was something that maybe I hadn't anticipated and I think is, is a really fascinating subplot here. Yeah, I think one of Don's stories, I can't remember which one, but uh, in his reporting, uh, his, his incest reporting, they really get at the rub of this with one of these conversations that they had with uh, DeMaurice Smith, uh, who has the NFLPA. And I'm going to read that quote for you. Um, this is what Smith told Don uh, about the fact that, you know, the NFLPA was kind of on the outside of these meetings and the players coalition was sort of running the show in terms of setting them up. Uh, I've used, viewed that as insulting to our players leadership. Smith said the league tried to use some of our guys to give them cover, to get them on their side. Our players leadership wasn't pleased and I wasn't pleased. So, you know, Smith and I think to some extent, some other people behind the scenes are, sort of implying that what what is being done here possibly is for show and you know the that possibility well while, while these players are obviously very passionate about these issues and they've shown that um the idea that they might be then be co-opted by the league i think is a real concern of a lot of the people that are taking part in this behind the scenes that have felt uh possibly frozen out Don, you've written extensively about Jerry Jones over the years. You're one of our leading geriologists. Um, and it's <laughs> been really, really interesting to see both what you've reported about what he said behind the scenes. And he's been pretty public with his views, too. Um, what can you tell us about Jerry and his role in this process? Well, Jerry Jones uh, has one overriding philosophy, and that is uh, the NFL is an entertainment business, and whatever's good for the business of the NFL is what he is for. And he has seen from the very beginning uh, the power of these anthem protests to erode the business. And so he has been out front, unlike any other owner, 
and saying flatly that any Dallas Cowboys player who kneels during the national anthem is not going to play. There's been no other owner that has said that. Uh, He was cheered, of course, that plays really great in North Texas, plays great throughout the heartland of America, actually. Uh, But there are a number of owners who uh, behind the scenes don't agree with that. Uh, His uh, anger at the sort of you know, downturn in many metrics at the NFL from television ratings to merchandise sales to all of the skittishness among all of the sponsors or nearly all the sponsors are skittish by this issue. The TV networks are not pleased. Jerry Jones's reaction to that is let's have a mandate that the league passes, uh, which is what he pushed for in these meetings, these two-day meetings in New York, that mandates every single NFL player to stand during the national anthem. And he could not get traction on that. So Jerry Jones, who you know is known for muscling his fellow owners and winning just about every single fight he picks, um, you know, he wanted Stan Kroenke's uh, St. Louis Rams in Los Angeles, and that's where they ended up first, um, beating out the Chargers and the Raiders. He wanted the Raiders in Las Vegas. That's where they're going to start playing in 2019. Jerry Jones wins most fights he picks. This fight he lost, and he was not happy about it. Wouldn't the other owners just like get sick of this guy? Like, who does he think he is? Like, being on these committees that he's not involved in? Like, we're billionaires. Like, we can't let this other guy, like, tell us what to do. There, There is certainly a number of owners who are losing patience with Jerry Jones, particularly when, when he started talking about the anthem mandate. The first thing out of his mouth is he says, I'm the ranking owner here, which we report in our story last week. Now, I, I don't know what ranking he's thinking of. Possibly he's thinking of the Forbes uh, valuation <laughs> rankings, which is true. The Dallas Cowboys are the most valuable franchise in the world, not just in the NFL. So perhaps he's talking about that. But there's a number of owners in that room who have owned an NFL franchise far longer than Jerry Jones. Um, so uh, he says that that rubs people the wrong way in the room. And uh, you know, now he did get into the Hall of Fame. Perhaps he's thinking about that. But Yes, they are. They are certainly have. Um, I think tired of uh, of Jerry Jones's um, style, and uh, and I think that's going to impact um, his attempt now at uh, commandeering this Roger Goodell contract situation. As the ranking member of this podcast, I now will allow <laughs> allow Jeremy to speak. Uh, Jeremy, um, the only person in America, perhaps, who has a higher opinion of, of himself than Jerry Jones does, is Donald Trump. And Jones and Trump have apparently had a bunch of different heart-to-hearts here. Um, You know, you've written, and I think it's your understanding that as part of Colin Kaepernick's collusion grievance, they're going to make an argument about Trump's involvement as far as collusion um, goes. What are your thoughts on how Trump's words play into this whole process now? The grievance letter that was filed by uh, Kaepernick's legal team alleging the collusion that the the league, either that two teams or a single team or more and the league have, uh, you know, either implicitly or explicitly reached this agreement to keep him off of the field. um, That letter specifically says that Donald Trump acted as a sort of go-between in conveying 
the the implied collusion between the owners. Uh, you know, that is going to be a very hard case to prove, I feel. But at the same time, there is this long public record of Trump having these communications and connections with uh, NFL ownership. Uh, specifically, he's had, you know, these close relationships and these close communications with two of the most powerful owners in the leagues. And I'm talking about uh, Bob Kraft, um, who was a major donor to his inaugural committee, um, who he flew on Air Force One with uh, back in March. And right after that, Trump made a statement that, you know, he was kind of bragging in uh, a public speech um, that, you know, he heard that ownership, he heard reports that ownership were afraid of him and that's why they wouldn't hire Kaepernick. Um, And at the same time, as as Don and Seth reported, uh, during an owner's meeting at the start of uh, the month that focused pretty heavily on this uh, protest situation, uh, Jones, you know, told the gathered group that A, he had spoken with Trump multiple times that day, and B, Trump was not going to let up in his attacks on the league. Jeremy Stahl is a senior editor for Slate. Thanks so much, Jeremy. All right, Don, there have been um, some apologies that have come after the McNair comment was reported. Um, What did you make of those apologies? Well, you know, the first apology uh, that McNair made that actually didn't get that much attention when our story was published was to Troy Vincent. Uh, Troy Vincent was in the room. He's the uh, NFL uh, executive who uh, deals often with the players. And after the owners finished speaking, after McNair made his comment about we can't have the inmates running the prison, Vincent said that all his years of playing in the NFL, during which he said had been called every name in the book, including the N-word, he never felt like an inmate. Uh, Shortly after that, Bob McNair apologized to Vincent. Uh, Apparently, it did come from the heart. And then on Friday morning, just a couple of hours after our story was published on ESPN.com, McNair uh, put out a statement um, apologizing to the world about it, uh, as quite a few of his players uh, in Houston were um, expressing their outrage uh, amongst themselves and other players around the league were expressing outrage on Twitter. Then on Saturday, McNair put out another statement sort of clarifying the context Uh, in which he made those statements, claiming he was not, when he was referring to inmates running the prison, talking about players, but instead was talking about the league office. Uh, I was struck by that because that seems to be saying that he is calling the league office a, a prison, and he's calling the people who work in it inmates, one of which is Troy Vincent, Uh, I believe that Troy Vincent was maybe the only African-American person in the room when Bob McNair made those comments, which is something that I think has been overlooked in, in what McNair said. The other question is, will Roger Goodell react to those statements? He has an owner now challenging in a, in a pretty provocative way, uh, the leadership of the league office, uh, on Saturday. And since then Goodell has said nothing about those comments. 
So in a way, I felt that the uh, apology on Saturday actually raised additional questions um, for McNair um, that need to be answered um, perhaps by him, but also by the commissioner. Don Van Natta Jr. is a senior writer for ESPN, the magazine. He also has a book coming out with Seth Wickersham called Powerball. It's about Roger Goodell and the NFL. You can look for it in 2020 if the world still exists then. Uh, Don, (laughs) thank you as always for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Josh. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Alexandra Starr's story, Pushing the Limit, in the November issue of Harper's Magazine, begins with a story about Andy King, the coach of a swim club in Danville, California, back in the 1980s. King's prize pupil, starting at the age of 12, was a girl named Deborah Denethorn. King didn't just coach her. He would give her rides to and from practice and would travel with her to meets. As Starr writes, he cultivated her for a predatory relationship, which led to intercourse when she was 15. Denethorn's parents suspected nothing. It wasn't until 2003 that another swimmer, Katie Kelly, wrote a letter to USA Swimming. The head of that group, Chuck Wilgus, did nothing about it, not telling Kelly that he'd received a report a year earlier about another girl who'd been abused by King. In 2010, King was at last convicted of molesting girls, and about a quarter century after he had started to sexually abuse Deborah Denethorn, USA Swimming finally released a list of banned coaches. In that piece for Harper's, Alexandra Starr writes about what's changed since the 1980s and even since a few years ago, why sexual abuse is so pervasive in sports and what can be done to stop it and root it out. She joins us from our New York studio. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Josh. And joining me for this conversation here in D.C. is my colleague, Christina Cotarucci. Hi, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, And Alexandra, let's start with you. I mean, you could have chosen any number of extremely dispiriting anecdotes to start off your story. There are others that are just as harrowing in the piece, including from the world of gymnastics. Um, There's a pattern here, right? Can you describe for us what um, this looks like in terms of um, the abusers and also in terms of institutional response? So what I saw as I spoke with victims and advocates and coaches across sports is that there is a pattern you discern where coaches identify girls, women, I mean, in some cases, boys, but girls are targeted much more frequently. They look for people who are particularly vulnerable, but also ambitious. And almost all of the people I spoke with were competing at the most elite levels of their sport, and particularly in sports that have a slightly more subjective scoring structure, like, say, gymnastics and taekwondo, that can make the athlete particularly dependent on the good graces of their coach and also the governing body that sponsors the sport. Um, 
And so what you end up seeing is that there are coaches and in some cases trainers and even medical doctors who see that and use it as an opportunity to prey on young women. In terms of the response of the sports governing bodies, until very, very recently, the de facto, I would say almost across the board response was to bury these complaints and to protect the stars of the sport. So if there were coaches who were particularly effective at helping the program you know, usher people to gold medals, if there were certain athletes who were top-level practitioners, the sports governing body worked to protect them and not the young women they were preying on. Christina, unfortunately, you've been writing a lot about sexual assault recently with the Weinstein allegations, with the Me Too phenomenon. What struck you when reading Alexander's piece? There were a lot of similarities uh, between what's been going on in Hollywood or, you know, what's what's been going on in Hollywood and every other industry and what's sort of uh, coming to light now more than ever. Um, the, the ambition that Alexandra mentioned, um, the desire to please the decision makers, um, the fear for what might happen to a, a burgeoning career if, uh, if, if one were to report these kinds of allegations. This is something that exists in every industry, in every situation where somebody in a position of authority uh, targets somebody vulnerable who needs their approval to ascend in their field. Um, but in Alexandra's story and in sports, I mean, a lot of these victims were children, which means uh, the allegations are a lot more severe um, in that they're child abuse. They're not workplace harassment. Um, in some cases, you know, they're rape in sports, they're rape of children. Um, so the the willful ignorance displayed by a lot of these um, the leaders of these governing bodies is is unconscionable. Um, as it is in any industry, even if, you know, it's harassment or rape of adults. But the fact that these are children uh, makes it, I think, a lot more difficult for the allegations to come to light because um, children don't know how to identify or report abuse. I think Christina has it exactly right. I mean, Alexandra, it's hard to um, overstate just how monstrous a lot of the characters are in this story and just reading it, even given the context of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein and how we've all, I think, culturally been thinking about this, um, what the people who are in charge of swimming and gymnastics have done over decades as far as turning a blind eye, it's just really, truly, even now, unbelievable. The Harvey Weinstein scandal has really permeated the public consciousness. What isn't as well known is the case of Larry Nasser. Um, he was one of the team doctors for USA Gymnastics. And in that capacity, he molested hundreds, if not thousands, of girls. Under the guise of providing treatment, I don't know how, <laughs> how explicit we want to get, but basically he was molesting them. And... What's striking is that in an interview with a sports podcast a few years ago, he described how important it was to win girls' trust. So Nasser described in this podcast interview how 
he would refuse to tell coaches the extent of the girls' injuries. And he said, if you lose the trust of one of these girls, then it's over for you because they'll tell the other gymnasts. Christina Michaela Maroney, who is one of the most famous American gymnasts known for her uh, not being impressed face. Uh, (laughs) She, as part of the Me Too uh, movement online recently, um, said that she was one of the hundreds, if not more, um, girls and women who were molested by Larry Nassar. It'll be interesting to see if other athletes join this movement, but Maroney's statement was really striking. Yeah, I thought it was incredibly brave of her to come out and say not only that she had survived this molestation, but that um, one of the things she said was that I had a dream to go to the Olympics and the things that I had to endure to get there were unnecessary and disgusting. The fact that she is essentially indicting the entire process of going through the the Olympic uh, sports network, uh, the fact that young women are sort of made to feel that um, they have no recourse against somebody who's abusing them, that this is just what you have to do to get to the top of your field. Um, that's not just an indictment of Nasser that's pointing the finger at, at everybody who enabled him. Um, and I actually see a lot of similarities between what Nasser was able to do and what people in Hollywood were able to do for decades, because both uh, industries concern the body and are, are physical. And I think that's how some abusers are able to sort of um, dampen the, the the warning alarms that go off in young women's minds. Well, with so, Toback, right? I mean, the notion that, oh, if you don't consent to what I'm asking you to do, that means you're not free as an actress. Exactly. And some of the other, I think it was uh, Lupita Nyong'o's article that she wrote uh, in the New York Times about Weinstein's abuse, she said, you know, at first she he asked to to give her a massage or if she would massage him. And, and in some of her acting classes, they would massage each other. So she sort of told herself maybe this isn't a big deal, where in another situation, she might have just bolted. And, and Nasser did the exact same thing. Uh, young women were able to convince themselves that they were getting legitimate medical treatment. Alexandra, let's turn to what um, is, you know, being done about this. Now, you wrote about this organization called Safe Sport that I didn't know about. Can you explain to folks what Safe Sport is and what they're trying to do? The idea for Safe Sport surfaced about seven years ago, um, and that's when the scandals in USA Swimming came to light. So what ended up happening is, as you mentioned earlier, Andy King was a well-known swim coach in Northern California. It turned out that he had raped at least a dozen girls, um, impregnated a 14-year-old at one point, and yet had been able basically to jump from club to club over the course of more than 25 years. Um, And so when that came to light, it really was a moment of wow, this is a big deal. We have to do something to protect young athletes. It's interesting that that U.S. Safe Sport didn't really get off the ground, though, until the revelations about Nassar came to light. And then, so it launched earlier this year, and at least for now, it's almost entirely funded by the U.S. Olympic Committee. 
Some advocates are concerned about that. They feel like that does not provide a sufficient um, level of independence for, you know, an organization that is supposed to root out sexual abuse in Olympic sports. I flew out to Denver and I met with the head. Her name is Shelley Full. She used to work in the Obama administration. And, you know, I think she's an extremely, she's very professional. You know, I think she is very well-meaning. Um, it's just the magnitude of the problem is huge. And I think some advocates are concerned that this organization at this point is not completely up to the task. I think a lot of those governing bodies have been so primed and so focused on winning medals that they have just pushed these allegations aside for so long. It'll be interesting to see how successful this push now to start making policing against sexual assault the priority. You know, whether advocates and victims are able to start kind of changing the ethos of these governing bodies, which was we do whatever is absolutely necessary to win as many gold medals as possible. You know, I don't think they made any bones about that. Um, and that has helped enable some people to use these sports as, and, you know, the young, ambitious people who move into these sports, they've been able to use that to, to prey on, on young athletes. So based on what you've read and thought about, Christina, what do you think of this kind of centralized model for trying to root out abuse? I mean, if one of these governing bodies of individual sport doesn't feel like, you know, keeping its own house in order, I wonder just how effective something like safe sport is going to be. Yeah, I think that um, the folks that Alexandra talked to raised a lot of great concerns. Um, I do think that something had to happen. I think that this is probably an imperfect step forward and hopefully the first of many institutional changes uh, and and many independent investigations that will come from these allegations. Um, but uh, I, I think the fact that, um, you know, child abuse is notoriously difficult to identify and report, especially in situations where, um, you know, children and parents are are led to trust adults that um, have almost complete authority over uh, over their children for for hours a day and for weeks and months and years out of their childhoods. Um, I, I I'm not optimistic that this will make uh, uh, that this will you know put an end to the problem. Um, but I'm looking forward to to hearing more from Alexandra, if you intend on continuing to report on, on safe sport. Um, and, you know, it's it's encouraging to see that finally after years and decades of abuse, um, someone's taking some sort of action, I guess. Yeah, and the case that this obviously brings to mind is Penn State, which we haven't mentioned, and Jerry Sandusky. And you see some of the same patterns of decades of abuse and people in power not wanting to hear about it and not wanting to do anything about it because of the culture of that place and the focus on winning and also um, the courage of the victims to come forward and tell their stories. And Alexandra, maybe we can 
finish, there are a lot of incredibly brave uh, women in your piece. I was wondering if um, you wanted to tell us about one of them that we haven't mentioned so far. Yeah, that's a great question. And also, you know, talking about Penn State, some people made the argument that what we saw in USA Swimming rivals that, but it didn't get the same kind of attention. I think in part because um, there were several coaches doing this. Um, And also it wasn't a man preying on boys. It was, you know, it was coaches preying mostly on teenage girls. Um, And Joe Paterno is also incredibly famous um, and Penn State football as an institution was incredibly famous. That's right. That's right. It really was kind of a part of the national consciousness, wasn't it? And it's football. So in terms of people I spoke with, there's so many stories and they are all heartbreaking and they are also all enraging. Really, like reporting this piece, it, it just, I think particularly as a woman, it's infuriating how girls and young women have been treated for decades. The case of Heidi Gilbert, so she is, um, she was in Taekwondo, which to be honest, is one of the worst offenders. People are always very surprised when I say that. But there are two men in Taekwondo. Um, if you know anything about Taekwondo, you have probably heard of the Lopez brothers. Gene Lopez was coach of the U.S. Olympic team, and his brother Stephen is a multiple Olympic medalist in the sport. Their family came over from Nicaragua, um, I think in the early 70s. And so in some ways, it's like a real rags to riches story. You know, their parents made tremendous sacrifices so that they could train and they did phenomenally well in the sport. Steven Lopez has been very credibly accused by multiple women whom he coached of raping them. Steven Lopez has been accused of having um, sexually assaulted several girls, particularly underaged girls. That is a theme that seemed to come up quite frequently with him. Heidi Gilbert was a um, an extremely promising Taekwondo athlete. Um, at the age of 16, she was pulled aside and told she was going to go to the Olympics one day. And first she trained at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado. And then she went to train with the Lopez's in Texas. And she did that in part because Jean Lopez, you know, had renown as a coach, but also because they had the best Taekwondo fighters there. So, you know, she needed to spar with the best in order to kind of perform at the level she was going to need to to get to the Olympics. Jean Lopez sexually assaulted her on at least two occasions. And this was not a secret in the Taekwondo world. She told multiple people about it. I spoke with people whom she had spoken to when the assaults happened. Um, But she was the one who ultimately left the sport. And Jean 
coached at the U.S. Olympics as recently as 2016. His brother, who had been very credibly accused of multiple counts of sexual assault, also competed in the Olympics last year. And then what really began to sort of raise eyebrows is that even after, I think at least four women spoke with Safe Sport about being assaulted and raped by Stephen Lopez, he was allowed to represent the United States in the Taekwondo World Championships earlier this year. And USA Safe Sport could have banned him from doing that. They did not. Alexandra Starr's story, Pushing the Limit, is in the November issue of Harper's Magazine. Uh, We'll link to it on our show page. Her previous story for Harper's on the trafficking of African basketball players made it into the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And Christina Cotarucci is a staff writer for Slate. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Josh. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now is the time for After Balls, or I should probably say After Ball. This might be the first solo afterball performance. So I'm going to need the audience here to really give me a lot of support. Give me uh, give me some good applause and feedback. Really appreciate that. So one thing that I didn't uh, get a chance to discuss in my segment with Ben Lindbergh was that the Dodgers, Brandon Morrow, and Game 5 had one of the worst pitching performances of all time. Now, he didn't give up like 18 runs or anything like that. But in terms of just pure badness efficiency, Morrow gave up four runs on just six pitches. That's almost theoretically impossible to do. No, it's not actually theoretically impossible to do. You could do it in even less than six pitches. But in all of baseball history, according to the good people at Baseball Reference, this had only happened two times before when a pitcher had given up four runs on six pitches. Now, one of those cases actually shouldn't count because um, that pitcher, uh, Juan Nicasio, gave up uh, an intentional walk, and that should really count as extra pitches. So it should really be 10. I'm not counting that, Mr. Nicasio. You're off the hook. But there was one other example, and that came uh, from a pitcher named Dewan Day. It happened in 2007, and he was with the Chicago White Sox. It was in the ninth inning of a game that the White Sox were leading nine to two. And Day comes into the game and let's look at uh, how he performed. Oh, single to right field on the first pitch. Not great. Oh, single to right field also on the first pitch. Not super great. Uh, wild pitch to Corey Patterson. I forgot that that guy existed. But then a single to Corey Patterson on uh, the third pitch of that at bat. Oh, and then again on the first pitch, a double to Luis Hernandez. Day gets hooked from the game, six pitches, eventually four runs scored. Day did not have a long and storied career in Major League Baseball. He only pitched in that one 
season, uh, 2007, for the Chicago White Sox. He had a career ERA of 11.25. But based on Wikipedia and on Twitter, he now appears to be a representative for Nike Golf. And he has a baseball record that was just tied by Brandon Morrow. So that's not nothing. So, Dewan Day, I honor you with my afterball. I'm actually giving multiple afterballs here. That was kind of an afterball before the afterball. So I'm going to now ask myself, all right, Josh, what is your Dewan Day? Thank you, Josh. My Dewan Day is about George H.W. Bush and about the Bush family. So um, he's obviously been in the news and on uh, people's minds a lot this past week because of allegations published in Slate and elsewhere that he grabbed sexually assaulted women during photo opportunities. Um, This has changed a lot of what people think about him and how he's perceived. Some of the image he cultivated as president was connected to sports. He played baseball at Yale. Um, The story that I came across recently was one that I hadn't heard before, um, and it is a strange one, kind of a lighthearted one, Um, but it begins with an appearance by Chris Everett on David Letterman's late night show back in the late 1980s. Tell me about the night at the White House. When did you uh, spend, uh, was this recently? Spent a night there, actually slept over? Slept in uh, Abe Lincoln's room. Wow. With my husband. Yeah? No. Yeah. And the ghost of Abe Lincoln. And what, was, um, what was the invitation, first of all? What was the, the this is the Bush administration? Yes, um, we're invited to, Pam Shriver and I played against the Bush brothers, Jeb and Marvin Bush. (laughs) Jeb and Marvin Bush? Yes. Yes. Jeb and Marvin Bush? Yes, Dave. There are Bushes named Jeb and Marvin. So there are contemporaneous accounts of this happening. Chris Everett is not uh, lying to us. So in 1989 was when this match happened. Uh, President Bush told reporters very soon after his inauguration. This was one of his first official acts as president. These women have suggested, talking about Chris Everett and Pam Shriver, that the Bush boys will not get over two games a set. And they beat us. Seriously. They're good players. Seriously. Yes. They lost. The Bush brothers beat them. If you look again at the contemporaneous accounts, a White House spokesman said that Marvin Bush, 33, and Jeb Bush, 36, both accomplished players, won two of three sets. This happened. Um, the fullest account that I could find of this amazing, historic event in our nation's history and in sports history came in a book by Doro Bush Koch. Um, the book is titled My Father, My President, A Personal Account of the life of George H.W. Bush. Abraham I was Lincoln was. Because Pam and I had just lost. I mean, the big thing was that we had lost the tennis match, and that was major depression. But you must have tanked it, right? No, we didn't. No, sure they, you did. no we played on a very fast court, and they were just they were just too strong for us. But now, um, what, what kind of players are they? They're, they're fat guys players. full of beer, right? I thought so. Yeah. I thought so. I I was having some time off at the time when I was invited, and I had like two or three weeks off. And I went up there thinking, they can't, you know, this is going to be a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were very good. They, they spent like three months getting into shape and training and everything. <laughs> Back to the book by uh, George H.W. Bush's daughter. She basically confirms Chris Everett's account. It was a fast court. She talks about how 
it was uh, played in this uh, Senate office building, Dark Sand, and like John Bro and John Hines and Thad Cochran and John Warner all gathered around to see the Bush boys beat uh, Chris Everett and Pam Shriver. The most interesting thing that she has this account, though, is an interview with Jeb Bush. He says, after we beat them, Marvin and I vowed not to talk about it in public until after their tennis careers were over for fear of diminishing women's tennis. What a nice gesture from Jeb Bush. Didn't want to diminish the women's tennis. Fortunately, we played indoors because the court was a lot faster and it made it possible for us to stay in the game, etc. He concludes by saying, the point was, it's not about me or Marvin or Chris Everett or about Pam Shriver. It's about dad and how excited he got. It was a great moment for dad and the thing that gave him more joy in sports than anything else I can remember. So that, my friends, is Jeb Bush, tennis champion, making his father happy in a time that now seems very long ago for many different reasons. That is the show for today. Producer of Hang Up and Listen is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Slate Money. It's a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance. Features Felix Salmon of Fusion, Slate's Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman, and political risk consultant Anna Shemansky. You can check it out and subscribe at slate.com slash slate money. For Josh Levine, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>